Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Uh, Neil, nice. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, Adam. I love the podcast. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, You've sent me over a bit of a list of of the kind of things that you've done, and there's a hell of a lot for us to get into there. So do you just want to kind of start from the start with us and, and start telling us your story, and we'll take it from there? Yeah, basically, I grew up in Rhode Island, which is the Ocean State, which, uh, as uh, many people know, is actually the smallest state in Rhode Island, in the U.S., I'm sorry. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, a good time growing up there. The summers were always really nice. Uh, it's like a... Uh, place where a lot of people come to um, have summer homes and stuff like that. And the radio was always really hugely influential on me at that time because we had a lot of college radio stations. We had Brown University Radio. We had Rhode Island School of Design, a.k.a. RISD. And we also had University of Rhode Island Radio. And I can remember all the way from the 80s being like kind of obsessive, tuning into these stations and um, recording uh shows and, and and just being really into all the amazing music i was hearing you know it was any anything from like freestyle to hip-hop um reggae dub dance hall new wave um synth pop you know just a lot of stuff like that very very influential on me to this very day so that level of diversity has always been there then most definitely for sure yeah i would say in the 80s growing up as like a skater uh, you know, you have a tendency to get into more like punk rock sounds back then. Um, but then once like 88 rolled around and like De La Souls, Three Feet High and Rising came around, like that just like blew my mind. Also like MC Light Eyes on this album. Um, by the time like 91, 92 rolled around, I was like way more into hip hop than I was like punk and hardcore. But because I was listening to that radio station, that like modern rock, new wave, uh, post-punk station i still listen to that religiously and i still love like jesus and mary and Ch- chain echo and the bunny men the cure new order like all that music still means like a lot to me so what do you think it was about three feet high because it's quite interesting that it's that album that would have taken a skater into hip-hop but with it being um dante ross did dante ross a and that he certainly did, yes. Yeah, and he was very much um, a skater that kind of crossed over into hip-hop as well. So it's interesting that, it, that it'd be that. So so is there any sort of key thing about that album then, do you think? I think it had so much to do, of course, with the samples and how dense it was. 
Also, the skits were funny. And just like the rhyme styles and the flow that all those guys brought to it, it was just so different. And it was just one of those albums, much like Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique, that you could just listen to start to finish and you would like never get sick of it. You know what I mean? You find something mm. new every time you listen to it. <laughs> yeah, and, and they were very kind of bold with the sampling, weren't they? They they were sampling pretty obvious stuff, but also both sound really ahead of their time, I think, as well. Yeah, at that time, um, my dad like used to play like the Steely Dan Asia album all the time. Mm. And I'm really grateful for that because I also really love Steely Dan. And um, of course, you know, De La sampled it and that was a connection I had there to it. But I mean, it's really hard to describe why I loved it so much, but I just did. You know, and I played it nonstop. Yeah. yeah. So were you buying vinyl then? I wasn't. My uh, my older brother, I got to give him a lot of credit. He was three years older than me and he really got me into um, hip hop because he worked at this uh, store called Woolworths. Um, it's like a department store. Yeah, we had that in um, Britain. Yeah, he worked in the sporting goods uh, section, but he had a friend who worked in the cassette and vinyl CD section. And that guy would let him come and like, you know, get like a new tape like every week. So he would bring home like all the new albums and some of them he would like and he would play in his car nonstop. And then other ones he'd be like, I don't get this, like and just throw it at me and be like, maybe you'll like it. And that was like MC Light Eyes on this. And actually Tribe Called Quest, uh, the first Tribe album, Peoples, he didn't really like that so much. It took him a while to catch on to it, but he gave it to me and I pretty quickly warmed up to it. Yeah, that's an amazing album. Um, it's interesting you say about your brother because I've, I've been thinking about this because so many people on here say that it was their older brother that, that put them on. For me, it was my older sister that got me into certain music. Um, and I'm a middle child. I, I, I pre I'm pretty much them too, yeah. 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 So, so I like, I'm wondering how many DJs are middle children. It's just a new theory I've got because it's the middle children that want the attention, isn't it? That, that, that struggle for it theoretically in the household. So it'd be interesting to sit to, to understand if like a lot of DJs are middle children. Yeah. It kind of trips me out though, because while I'm still very much music obsessive, he has like a wife and three kids now, and he's just fine putting on the radio and listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. But back then, he was like so passionate and he was like so into it. Like, yo, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. And just like riding around in his car every day to high school and like playing NWA and APMD. And like, you know, yeah, I I'm very much appreciative to him for putting me on to a lot of that stuff very early on. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. My sister still likes a lot of music, but it's it's very kind of mainstream stuff. She's she doesn't kind of seek anything out. Whereas with her, it was a lot of the the kind of breakbeat hardcore and the rave stuff in the mid nineties. So it was okay. Yeah, she put me on some really good stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So so from there, then um, when did you start buying records, or or when did you decide to DJ? What was your first exposure to DJing? Um. I remember in like the 80s, I used to go roller skating at a roller skating rink and I would hear like uh, the DJ mix like uh, Nucleus Jam on it and like Freeze, like A-E-I-O-U and songs like that. And I remember the songs like blending and kind of being like, wait a minute, how is this happening? But not really understanding what was going on. And it wasn't until I moved to San Diego when I was 19 
And I got a copy of uh, Mark Farina, Mushroom Jazz, that it really clicked with me. Also, another uh, similar uh, cassette mixtape by Julius Pat, DJ Julius Pat, also out of San Francisco, called Lazy Days. And it was really like a, a, a mix of like instrumental hip hop, jazzy, kind of dubby, kind of beats, and also some like, um, you know, like um, modern soul or like uh, uh, um, UK soul and stuff like that. And I just got really into that sound at that time. And, and then I, I wanted to go out and actually find the instrumentals to, you know, a lot of these like hip hop singles. I didn't really care to have the actual like vocal versions. I mean, I, to this very day, one of the reasons why I really love hip hop so much is because you get like the amazing lyrics and you get the beats and you get to learn about all the sample and DNA of the music when you want to go and, you know, on like who sampled and, and learn about that stuff. Mm. But for me, it was always like the beats at that time. I was just really like addicted to listening to instrumental hip hop and also trip hop as well. Yeah. So yeah, I started going to like a store that had like a bargain bin and they had like records for like two and three dollars. And I didn't even have turntables when I was like, at that time, I was like, man, if I don't buy these, like, I'm never going to be able to get this again. And it says instrumental right there. Like, I need to get it. So I just started buying all these records. And then I accumulated like probably like about almost like a crate or something like that. And then I started looking for like turntables and stuff like that. And then I quickly learned that, you know, I could get Gemini's, but I should probably invest in 1200s. So I saved up enough money. And I eventually got 1200s out of this like newspaper in San Diego called the San Diego Reader. And I was uh, I was hyped because I got them for only like $450 for like two of them. Mm. But the funny thing was, I didn't even know what the pitch control was for. And one of the pitch <laughs> control, one of the pitch controls was broken. And uh, I later had to get it repaired. But yeah, I still have those turntables in this apartment to this very day. And I will never get rid of those. Those are like my kids. <laughs> yeah, I was close to getting rid of my techniques, but I just realized I need to clean them instead. So what was it that took you to San Diego then? Uh it was like it was like 1995 and it was freezing cold and it was like January and I actually had an opportunity to move to New York City at that time because Rhode Island is only like 4 hours from New York. So I was entertaining that, but I had a friend who became a professional skater. Jason Maxwell, and he invited me out to sleep on his couch. And on a whim, I just bought like a one-way ticket on Leisure Airlines. It was one hundred nine ninety nine, Boston to LA. <laughs> and I just went there, and an old friend uh, picked me up at LAX. He let me crash on his couch. He was going to UCLA at the time. And then the next day, he dropped me off at the train station. And then my friend Jason picked me up in uh, Del Mar, and I stayed on his couch for like three months. And so I eventually got like a job working for a skateboard company. Yeah. So what did, did skating kind of give you quite a big community across the country then? Oh, most definitely. That's like the most beautiful thing about skateboarding is there's a real brotherhood uh, amongst skaters, uh, especially back then because it wasn't so like socially accepted and cool, you know? That was kind of the lull, wasn't it? in the popularity of it was it sort of mid early to mid 90s yeah like where i grew up like we used to get like harassed and we would sometimes have to fight like i hate to say it like jocks and like sometimes even like metalheads and stuff like that 
that would like yell stuff to us out the window, like punk skater or something like that. But it's all good, you know. It's not like that anymore. But you know, yeah, those were uh, really memorable times. And and living in San Diego was also very memorable. Um, at that time, like the acid jazz scene was pretty popular, and there was a guy called Gray Boy. I used to go see him uh, DJ at this place called Green Circle Bar, and that was probably my very first experience. Like I had like a fake ID. And like, I think I was only like 20 at the time and I was able to go out and hear him like cut up doubles of like the whatnots help is on the way. And like, just like all these amazing songs, like, you know, Mary Jane girls all night long and Mm. like, and just being like wowed by that. And also playing like a lot of hardcore hip hop from 96, 97 around that time, which was like very inspiring to me to see, you know, because he really rocked. He was, I don't know if uh, people are familiar with Grey Boy as a DJ, but he was really dope, man. Like he, everything was super precise and, you know, he would be cutting up doubles still like rocking a dance floor, you know? Yeah. I only know of him because of the, because I've got that gray by all stars. Right. Yeah. With, I think with Fred Wesley on it. Yeah. He also has like an album on ubiquity and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. He's, he's, he's dope, man. Yeah. So I got really into like the acid jazz scene and sound. So I started buying those kind of records and, um, yeah, once I got my turntables, I just really tried to 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 learn to mix as as quickly as I could, and it kind of came like easy for me. Uh, I never really learned, to be honest. I never really learned how to scratch that well. I could do my little Ziga Ziga. For me, I was more passionate about the music and mixing, the, trying to have like long mixes and really keep the 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 beats like on point, and you know what I'm saying, like stuff yeah. like that, and like recording myself and playing it back and, and hearing how it sounded. And um, I really like that whole concept of like mixing two songs together to almost kind of make something else if you could hold the mix long enough. And how certain songs really do sound like they were meant to go together. And back then, I didn't yeah. even know about like key or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah, because you've, you've got a lot of mixes on Mixcloud as well, haven't you? Spanning a lot of different genres. I most definitely do, man. Yeah, I, I uh, at, at one point I got like really passionate about making mixes as a way to express myself. And I think that's like the greatest thing about making mixes. It really is like a blank palette and you could just go in and you can just like start to finish, like curate the playlist, go on YouTube, find certain like samples that you can chop up and add and sound effects and yeah, so I got really into that for a while. I was very passionate about that for a long time. Mm. So how long after getting your decks did you first DJ out? And was it was it hard to get gigs in with it being a new city to you? Um, well, I worked at a store called Urban Outfitters. Uh, I'm mm. sure many are familiar with that. It's a pretty popular uh, retail clothing chain store. I think they have them in, in Europe as well. Yeah. And... Uh, the woman there, she kind of took a liking to me and she offered me to uh, bring my turntables and she was like, I'll give you a $100 gift certificate if you want to come in and, and and play records, you know? So that was really my first gig and I thought it would be like perfect because at that time, again, I was really into like just blending like instrumental hip hop and like trip hop and stuff like that. And I knew that would be like cool for like background retail music. So that's just what I started doing. And yeah, the first gig I had, I was like hella nervous. Like, oh my God, I definitely had some train wrecks and stuff like that. But, you know, I did my best. And, and um, 
she invited me back like more than a few times and and I was always really glad to do it and yeah that's initially how I started and then San Diego had like a really big reggae scene like and so okay. I was always hugely into reggae and again I really want to give a lot of credit to this DJ Peter Dante he recently passed away and he was on University of Rhode Island Radio. He had a show called the Reggae Showcase. He'd been on since 1982, just volunteer, not getting paid, playing reggae music every Sunday from two to five. And this man was so influential on me, like just educating me on the foundation of like reggae music from ska to rocksteady to rub-a-dub to dub to dance all lovers rock. Like I would say reggae music is probably the most dearest music to my heart to this very day because of that. And I owe, I owe everything to him because of, you know, his, he would really educate you on what was being played. He had a three hour show and he would talk about, you know, what the, the labels were, the studios, you know, the, 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 the bands playing on the records and stuff like that. And so again, I'm very grateful for him and rest in peace, Peter Dante. So just thinking then about how diverse you are as a DJ, I, I think it's fair to say you're probably the most diverse person that's been on in terms of the depth of all, you know, you know, going from reggae and things like that to new wave, to shoegaze, to hip hop, you know, you're just that everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, how was that for, for a DJ that's buying records? Like, how, how are you managing to buy enough of any particular genre. Oh man, it's funny you should bring that up because that at one point living in New York and 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 and, and like being so passionate about so many different kinds of, of music, my record collection grew so huge at one point. Like I fortunately I was able to get a job at a record store called Off the Record in San Diego. Um and I eventually became like the down-tempo reggae and also hip-hop buyer there. And at that time in like 99, 2000, it was just mind-blowing to me the type of collections that would be coming through there. And like you, I would get like Gangstar 12 inches mint condition for like $2. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I really built up my collection there at that time. And sometimes it's funny working in a record store because like some of the other coworkers, we'd literally almost get into fights over certain records that would come in. Like, cause like a lot of reggae collections wouldn't come in, but like when a reggae collection would come in and I would see like a green sleeves, I'd be like, I gotta have that. And then the other dude would be like, no, I already got that in my whole bin, whatever. But yeah, I, by, by reggae, hip hop, new wave, you know, rock, soul jazz rare root collection grew very quickly and um even when i got to new york i was eventually able to get an expense account working for echo uh three thousand dollars a year which was like amazing just to buy music to record to play in the echo showroom yeah so just just going back then so how long do you stay in san diego i was in san diego from january of 95 until uh april of 2001 I went to school for a couple of years there. I went, yeah, I went back to college, uh, junior college, and then I applied to Hunter College in New York, and I got accepted. And I made up my right. mind that New York, going back to the East Coast, was where I wanted to be. I took a couple of trips over a couple summers and stayed in New York, and it was just so mind blowing to me. Like I couldn't believe growing up in Rhode Island, I didn't make more trips to New York. Like New York was just like everything to me at that time. It's just everything was so exciting. 
around every corner, you know. How many records did you have to move then across across the country? Um, it wasn't that. I would say it was like about like t- maybe ten to twelve crates. You know what I'm saying? But oh, okay. remember, I, 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 yeah, remember I only started DJing and like I started collecting records in '97, and I moved in early 2001. So I would say very quickly I was able to get like a pretty solid collection of like legit um joints you know what i'm saying yeah and uh yeah and then like as soon as i got here uh it was it was a little difficult i was able to transfer to urban outfitters which was a a nice cushion to have a job when i got here and thankfully i was able to get a job at the turntable lab store which hadn't opened yet summer 2001 i had a friend growing up in rhode island who now actually runs mad decent with diplo who's uh was one of the original founders of Turntable Lab, and he looked out for me. He hired me and also DJ Neil Armstrong to open yeah. the uh, first Turntable Lab store on 7th Street in the East Village, which is actually only like in the backyard of A1 where I work now. So A1 is on 6th between 1st and A, and Turntable Lab was on 7th Street between 1st and A. So it kind of came for a circle, you know what I mean? So what was that like then? Because Turntable Lab became such a big deal for a lot of DJs. Did you kind of, was there a plan for it to be such a big thing or was it very casually like, oh, we're opening a record shop. Do you want to come and work there? Uh, At that time, I knew Turntable Lab was like becoming pretty well respected on the online um, tip. Like, you know, they had really cool music reviews on there and they they're you know it was really like highly curated and of course like the equipment and stuff like that yeah i was very like honored to be working there and stuff like that but i didn't really know that the impact it was gonna it was gonna make but very quickly i i I realized what what it i mean we had uh in august of 01 when when we opened we had cubert uh in there for for the launch and and like man like i was never i went to some dj battles and stuff like that but I was never into like really like turntablism like that. But I definitely mm. had a respect for it. And at that time, like Cuba was the guy. You know what I mean? And yeah. so to have him in the store, I mean, there was like a line down the block. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah that those guys. It's it's interesting how how the scratch pickles managed to really kind of commercialize turntablism. Definitely. You know, it was absolutely phenomenal what they did. Yeah. So was so was Turntable Lab operating online before the physical shop then yeah i would say Ah, they i would say they launched in like late 98 they had like a really like kind of small space in the same building that fat beats was in manhattan um in debrasa street and um yeah like uh they were able to move to williamsburg at that time into into a much bigger space and uh yeah they they took off like really quickly because you if you remember at that time like turntablism was was real huge so they were selling mm-hmm. a lot of equipment a lot of scratch records and just a lot of records in general yeah because i was watching someone's interview it might have been something with a track where he was kind of explaining why they did so many scratch records because you basically didn't have to pay any sample clearance on anything on them oh yeah no, all that stuff was, was was like very much like bootleg and yeah definitely Although Turntable Lab didn't really sell a lot of bootlegs, you had to go to Rock and Soul for that. Rock and right. Soul was the place to get the bootlegs. <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time in there because the Echo Showroom was on Thirty Seventh Street, and Rock and Soul was literally only like two blocks away. So I was in there weekly, 
Yeah, that was like, that was awesome. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oneadj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides, and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. So you went from Urban Outfitters to Turntable Lab? Yeah, I, I, I actually got a job. At, I left Urban Outfitters pretty quickly. I only worked there for like a couple months. Uh, I was kind of miserable there. The store was like pretty highly unorganized and I was only making like $9 an hour at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Turntable Lab was actually supposed to open in early summer, but didn't open till end of summer. But a mutual friend offered me a job at Echo being the facilities manager, making $10 an hour. And uh, they had this like beautiful showroom on 37th Street. And I just jumped at the opportunity. And so, yeah, I started working there. And the cool thing about that was uh, Mark Echo had a 25 CD disc changer, but he only had three CDs. He had <sighs> Erica Badu, Mama's Gun. He had Common, Like Water for Chocolate. And he had that Bob Marley remix album at the time. And that was the only CDs he had. And I had just moved out to New York City with, you know, all these records. So on a whim, I just emailed him. I was like, I found out what his email was. I hadn't even met the guy yet. I was pretty naive at the time, but I guess that's being young and just like excited about everything. And I just took a chance. I still had the email in my in my sent uh, email and hotmails and it has like typos and stuff like that. But it's funny, I go back and read it and he totally went for it. I told him I moved out to New York. I'm working as a facilities manager at your showroom and I would love to just like record a bunch of the records that I brought out here and make some mixes to play in the showroom. And he was super down with it. You know, he gave me the expense account. I went and I bought like a a, a CD recorder and I just started making CDs and I started sending to them to him. And it was like a mix of rare groove and reggae and hip hop and R&B and soul. And he was really feeling it. So I I, I quickly kind of warmed up to him and, and he was grateful for that. The showroom was playing great music. And man, like the people coming through there at that time, like, Grandmaster Flash and like I remember Special Ed used to be in there every day smoking on the rooftop <laughs> tech from Smith and Wesson like it was just like I worked at the front desk with the office manager and every day like people would come in there like Primo and like 
man, like you would that like the elevator door would open, you wouldn't know who would be next. You know what I mean? Echo was huge at that time. Like, yeah, man, the campaigns like we had like Capone and Oriega, Reese, um, a Red Man and Method Man, and you know, R- R- Echo was really making uh, moves at that time, like hugely. You know, did Echo cross over into skate culture then as well, or was it a lot more hip hop? It was always more hip-hop, but they always tried to have a footing in that. There was a guy named Andre Page who has been down with Echo since day one. And he was like an amazing skater. And he always made sure to flow like like skaters, like, you know, Echo gear and stuff like that. But they never really, really had like a huge campaign for that, I don't think, to try to get into skate. That's why they later on, they went and bought Zoo York. Yeah, so at that time, I was managing the Zoo York showroom. Uh, Complex Magazine just started. I was managing that office, the Echo showroom, and this was all in like a two-block radius. And my job was just to make sure like the light bulbs were working, the cleaning company was doing their thing. And if they did have music playing in there, I made sure to have my CDs playing in there as well. So where did where did that develop then? Well, eventually Echo had an opportunity to open their first five retail stores. They did a deal with Levi's at, um, like in the U.S., there's a lot of these like um, outlet malls that are like really popular. Mm. And uh, Echo opened their first five retail stores. And initially they had hired like Play Network and Muzak, which are very popular background music companies. Muzak at that time was huge for programming music for The Gap, Play Network for Starbucks. And yeah, we initially met with them. And Play Network initially got the gig to do the music, but very quickly, um, Mark wasn't really happy with the level of curation. Um, you know, because at that time, like Echo was like a real proponent of like indie hip hop, and I, I I just think the catalogs at that time were really there yet. Like they would have like some raucous stuff and everything, but like you know, eventually. Mark wanted me to just focus on the music. And so I wrote up a job description. And fortunately, once again, because he believed in me, he hired me to be the music director for the brand. And that encompassed being, you know, music director for the stores, also for the, all the showrooms, and then also doing like marketing, like product placement and stuff like that on artists. Uh, if you look at the Pete Rock, Pete Stramentals album, like the uh, P-Rock is wearing like an Echo shirt on there. I helped with that. Just doing right. stuff like that. Yeah. And I did that for years and that was an amazing gig for sure. When you were doing that, did you ever worry that music would lose its fun? You know what? At times it, it, it kind of did lose its fun because I would have to come up with five hours of music every month for these stores Um, Because I remembered when I worked at The Gap, the Muzak loop was four hours and people would complain about that. So I said, okay, let me give these stores five hours so at least they only have to hear the songs twice a day, not three times a day. And Mm. at that time, I had to make sure that they were like the right radio edit and clean versions. And as you can imagine, like there was a lot of dope hip hop at the time commercially, but tracking down all those clean versions, radio versions... And just like the right music that much every month was a challenge. So I really had to do my work, you know, and uh, iTunes, like 
had it launched yet. It would be like another year until iTunes launched. So I really had to go to the labels and make sure like I had to record a lot of radio versions off of vinyl and stuff mm. like that. But I, I made it work as best as I can. But it was really challenging at times, you know, because I, I worked in retail and I knew how important it was to have like the best new music because it would be motivational for the staff and for the customers. And they didn't want to keep using the same songs and stuff like that. So, yeah. And then also DJing at that time, you know, it was cool. Like I, I enjoyed it, but like at times, like the music wasn't always as inspiring as I wish it would have been, you know? Because of the p music policies of the places that you were playing? I don't know. I don't want to... It's just like certain certain stuff that was popular on that was becoming really popular on the radio at the time like i just didn't get it you know like uh, uh yin yang twins and stuff like this like it was silly yeah but you know you did the best you could it was new york city because so you could get away with more you know uh there's like a classic style of djing in new york city that was really cool and i wish we could kind of go back to that where you open up with a lot of like R&B, 80s classics, and then you go into some like new club bangers, hip hop and R&B, and then you have your dance hall set, reggae set that always goes off, and then maybe you go into some more like up-tempo classic hip hop like De La Soul, Saturdays, and then you go into some like disco classics like Give Me The Night to close out the night, and yeah, you got to play like a lot of amazing music, but like as the years progressed, like that format was getting less and less popular in like the Friday and Saturday night spots that I was being paid to DJ. So what did that formula become then? Just uh, very, very radio driven. Like for instance, when um, when um, In The Club came out, like like you would literally have to play that sometimes like, like back to back, like three, four times. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It's okay. I mean, I still like that song to this day, but um, yeah, there was just a lot of music at that time. Again, I, I grew up on like uh, listening to like Stretch and Bobbito and stuff like that. Yeah. I was more into like the independent side of hip hop, but man, when like Nori Nothing came out, like you could not deny that that wasn't an amazing fucking rap track. Like that song was to this day is like bonkers. You know what I'm saying? So there was always those moments where stuff would come along. And like R&B too, like I've always been like a big fan of R&B ever since I heard like Erica Badu, Baduism, like that album like changed my life. Also Sade, Love Deluxe. Um, yeah, like being able to work in some of those like Neptunes, Usher, R&B joints and stuff like that, like definitely helped. And a it's funny because a lot of that stuff you can still play now and it still works. Yeah. Yeah. De definitely like the Neptune stuff. It's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it could be because with a few different people I've talked to, it does seem like that kind of mid-2000s was when things kind of dipped. And I wonder if some of it's like generational, some of it could be to do with when was like Jersey Shore? Exactly, man. You know what happened? It had a lot to do with CD sales falling off mm. and the you know, radio just demanding like a format of music. By the time Black Eyed Peas and Lady Gaga and all that stuff started coming in, like if you go back and listen to that stuff, like uh, what's that group? Like Party Rockers in the House Tonight, LMAFO, like all that stuff, it really has like a similar structure. 
And that was, they were like basically brainwashing the listeners. And unfortunately, if you were DJing in like Friday and Saturday and night bar clubs, you had to play that stuff because you were getting like requests for it. And that was when the whole EDM sound was coming in. I don't really have anything against EDM. I remember back in the day, I kind of used to like like Dead Mouse and stuff like that. Like the production would kind of like blow my mind. You know, I started getting into more like four on the floor style music mm. going out to like after hours in New York. Like I really started getting into house music more, techno music more, dub techno, which I still love to this very day. And I'm very grateful for those experiences. You know, they were definitely enhanced by certain substances <laughs> until the wee hours of the morning. But man, like those, those, those experiences I had at those after hours, like they were kind of life changing, you know? So I'm grateful to that to have gotten into more like up tempo music and 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 um, those kind of sounds. You know. Did you start to step into DJing that sort of stuff then? Oh, most certainly. Yeah, like by the time like the EDM uh, uh, dominant um, genre like started really, really, yeah, you would have to play that kind of stuff. And you know, I I always did my best to to search for stuff on Beatport that I still loved. I wasn't just like playing like a top 40 playlist at that time. It was really cool. There was always kind of really cool remixes of stuff that you can find. And then of course there was genres like new disco, which I really got into. You could like warm up a night with that. And there'd be like new disco remixes of like pop songs, kind of cheesy, you know, like, uh, like what was that hype machine, stuff like that. Like, uh -huh. I, do you remember that website? There was a website called Hype Machine that was like hugely popular and they would have like a top 100. And I remember when I worked at Turntable Lab, I would like check that religiously. And that was when like the whole blog era was like dominating and you could really go in and just get like free free remixes everywhere. And so, yeah, my I, I very quickly warmed up to playing a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Some of it was really cheesy in retrospect, but you know. Yeah, but if, if it worked at the time... It That's worked at the time, exactly, yeah. So what was the crossover with Echo and Turntable Lab then? Um, There wasn't much of a crossover with Echo and Turntable Lab. I remember at one point Echo wanted to buy Turntable Lab and that, was on the, that deal was on the table and it never really came to fruition. But I was working at Turntable Lab on the weekends because I got the job at Echo working Monday right. through Friday and then I scaled it back to just working on Sunday. And then eventually I was just like, man, I want my weekends free. So I recommended mm. somebody else for the job and I left Turntable Lab. And I kind of did regret that because like that was the amazing thing about working at Turntable Lab was just being around that music and all the new cool records that they were getting in all the time. I really felt like I, I at least should have kept my job working there either on, on Saturday or Sunday. But, you know, I was DJing out till like four in the morning and stuff like that so i didn't want to have to go to work you know what i mean so that's a lot of your time occupied that's a busy life yeah back then in your 20s you could do it i don't know how i did it because even now like working at a1 now it's like i get offered gigs sometimes and i know i have to work on saturday and sunday and sometimes i'm like nah, i can't do it because i you know i gotta be functioning at echo i, yeah. I mean i'm sorry a1 and uh, I can't stay out that late. I need my rest and relaxation, you know. Yeah, I mainly yeah. just try and DJ daytimes now. There's, there's just not that much good daytime stuff that goes on where I am. Like I, some of the guys that I've talked to on here and, and even like in, down in London, um, 
and in um, San Francisco and Miami, you know, they've got all these restaurant gigs and, and things like that on the daytimes. Um, it sounds amazing. Is there much of that sort of stuff in New York? There most definitely is. And when I was working at this company called EL Media Group doing background music programming, I was able to get those kind of gigs more. And those were awesome because you would be DJing in like hotel lobbies and stuff like that. And you were just playing like background music. And yeah. fortunately, one of my favorite styles of music is really like chill. Like I love like Balearic music. I love a lot of lounge music. And you could get paid like three, four hundred dollars in a night to just play that stuff. So I uh, Thievery Corporation and whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whatever else. And uh, yeah, I still appreciate that music very much. So I took advantage of those gigs as much as possible. So nowadays then, what, what would be, in retrospect, like, what's your favorite type of music to DJ? I would say now it's like starting the night with more like mid-tempo music, electronic music mainly. Um, and then like working the tempo up to more like deep house sounds, even some like tech house sounds, um, to, to, to look to work up to like a dance floor frenzy. That's what I really want to play. And I've had a vision to start my own party for quite some time now. But mm. I mean, as you know, it's a, it's a lot harder than people think. You really got to be focused, but I have some things in the works. And, uh, as far as the music that I want to play out, it's a lot of electronic music. It's a lot of music, you know, over the last 10 years that like, you know, I, I, I feel like I go out and I don't hear the songs playing and I'm like, man, like if I was playing this, I know the crowd would be responsive to it. Not only young people, but older people too, you know? Yeah. 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 So, sorry, just going back to your timeline. I appreciate it. I jumped about a bit there. Um, no problem. When did Echo come to an end then? And what forward <laughs> did you then go into that life, the, um media company from there no what happened was the uh recession hit uh the big recession of 2008 and fortunately i was able to get out of echo basically i asked for like a raise and they wouldn't give it to me because at that time echo came out with a video game and it won a vma and i was uh highly involved with the music supervision for that game mm. and um yeah, so that was like a big deal to me. So maybe I got a little ahead of myself, but I said, uh, you know, I want to get a raise. They thought that that was, I was, you know, asking for a little too much. And they said like, yeah, you could still work for uh, Echo on like a freelance level, but maybe it's your time to move on. Because I had been there for seven years. I, I didn't know that like right around the corner, the recession was coming. They yeah. still gave me that amount in severance. And I'm very grateful for that because later on, I found out that a lot of people were let go and they didn't get a similar severance that I got. So mm. I went back to DJing like a lot of lounges and like little like bar gigs to pay my bills. And then thankfully, Turntable Lab hired me back and I started working at the uh, Turntable Lab store again. And then from there, I got a job working for Legit Bigs, which was like a, a, a music tech company from Canada at the time. And uh, yeah, that was a very rewarding experience. I worked there for at least four to five years. Yeah. It makes that wanted to kind of monetize mashups. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and actually mixtapes. Like the owner, mm. uh, Omid, who founded the company, he's, he's definitely a genius. Um, you know, he was like big into like, uh, mix, like CDs at the time, like Ministry of Sound and like 
he was just always wowed by like those kind of like mixes and he wanted a way to be able to like he knew that DJs were recording mixes and that they couldn't legally release them. So that's why he founded uh Legit Mix as a way to 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 monetize that. And for a while it worked out pretty good. Uh, I, I don't think we could foresee that streaming was gonna catch on as much as it did. And then also like edit and remix culture is kind of like a free kind of culture. And I think that people who create edits and remixes, they kind of like that about it. They're not mm. like, in, you know, and, and a lot of sites could, you could still get away with like selling like your remixes and mashups and like, you know, legit mix was a way to actually do it like legally. So respect to them for, for at least trying to get the original artists paid and the remixers and DJs paid. Yeah, I remember trying to use it. I don't, I don't know what it was that was the barrier with it. Maybe just that no one wanted to hear what I was doing. <laughs> uh, no, I doubt that. There was definitely some barriers with it. Like, in order to download, like, a mashup, like, it would scan your library, and you would have to have, like, the exact copy of the file for what you were using. And if you had, right. like, an extended version or, like, a remastered version, it, oh, it wouldn't always work. So you would have to buy the the you would have to identify the remastered version in order to to make it happen. You know, they definitely had some some real some real triumphs and 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 progress for a while. They got into uh, believe it or not, like cheerleader mixes. There's just a whole subculture of like cheerleaders that like to take pop songs and like uh, remix them and make the tempo faster to to you know accommodate like their like cheer cheer squad right. stuff and they started selling a lot of that stuff yeah oh wow yeah there's, there's another there's um is it i think it's track lib at the moment isn't it that's one of these it's the, about like being able to legitimately license samples and that's got that same thing where you've got to use their like, the exact specific digital version so you can't just sample something off a record onto your mpc and think that's brilliant You've got to do it in a really specific way, which kind of takes away from the magic. I think with them, you have to identify the source material that's already been approved for licensing in their catalog. Yeah. Yes, you know that's right. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that's uh, Tracklib was like a really great idea, and I think it was amazing. I think they had like DJ Prince Paul, who was like a god, um, uh, as a, uh, you know a, a spokesperson for them, and I thought that that was really cool and. I, I feel like they've made some some good pro progress track lib. I've never used it personally, but yeah, I think they went with Bob James as well. Uh, yeah, I heard he has a new album coming out, and it has like a lot of like uh, people who have sampled him are, are going to be working with him on the album. I heard that on the Questlove podcast. Yeah, it, it, I, I think he's kind of warmed to his musical legacy now hasn't he and the impact he's had on sample culture i think it took him a while it certainly did took him for take him for a while because uh i think back in the day he was very much against it and he was like yeah. really angry actually but oh yeah he's like uh talib kwali just hosted him at the blue note and did a on stage like live thing with him a q a oh, nice. and also something musically where a bunch of rappers and stuff came out. Yeah, respect to Bob James, the guy's a, a legend. Yeah, and and may, maybe he has realized because we, without sample culture, I wouldn't, uh, I probably wouldn't be DJing. You know, it, it's like that's another thing that I loved about Legit Mix was like the whole DNA of the music and 
anytime you can educate people on the source material, because like, to this very day, I'll be working at A1 and I'll, someone will throw on like a random jazz record and I'll be like, oh my God, that's from that, that indie rap song that I haven't mm. heard since 99. And like, it's just always like, it, it's literally like the type of thing where like, if I'm not having like a good day and I don't have much motivation, like that will spark something in me and get me like excited. Like I love it, you know? I love Who Sampled, Who Sampled is awesome. Yeah, the, the one that blew my mind recently was hearing the Seals and Crofts record that sampled for Put Your Eyes Where Your Hands Can See, the Buster Rhymes Oh one. yeah, somebody <laughs> was telling me about, somebody bought that record at, at A1 recently. It was like, customers always do that. They're like, you don't know this? And like, yeah, it's really cool, man. Like that's I love like Eddie. That's why I love working at A One and like working at Legit Mix and working also for El Media Group. Like the levels of music discovery was just like insane. Like when I worked at El Media Group, like we could that we had like an expense account to download as much music as we want from Apple like daily, and like it that's all it was every day was like listening to music and then like curating it into playlists, tagging it of course. And like I did that for like five years. Unfortunately, I was able to keep my collection, um, and I have that. To do. I have over a hundred thousand songs, like all highly mm. tagged and curated and stuff like that. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Do you, when you got that job, was it um, was it just a uh, kind of oh I know this guy that wants the job, or were you in a proper application process with people? You know what it was, man. I was. Uh, uh, Le legit mix could no longer afford to pay me because you know it you know it was like they were doing their thing but like i was more involved on the marketing level and they didn't you know they didn't need like so much marketing and stuff like that i had my course had run with them and then i was all, all this time i was putting music on ipods for a lot of places where i was djing and stuff like that and I was getting a lot of feedback all the time. Like I would come into like these restaurants where I'd be DJing on Friday night at this one place, Delicatessen. I DJed there for over 10 years in Soho. And like the staff would be like, hey, you know, customers are always asking like, who does the music here? And I would leave my business cards and customers would actually email me asking. I would get gigs that way. So I knew I had like a talent for it. And I just kept doing it and I wanted to get a job for like an actual company doing it. But I, did, I didn't really know like if there was like a lot of companies like this doing that at the time. Uh, I had like a chance meeting with a friend, Oscar, who wanted me to get his record in at Turntable Lab. He's like, can you meet me at Turntable Lab? Can I get my record in on consignment there? And then he like randomly asked me, he was like, yo, what are you doing for a living now? Are you still working for a legit mix? And I'm like, no, I've been doing a lot of like music background programming for restaurants and places like that, you know, retail, some stuff like that. He was like, well, I know someone that just signed a resort in Jamaica and they're really looking for someone that has a knowledge of reggae. And I know you do because at that time I was really passionate about my mixes. And so he knew that like I was like, you know, recording mixes regularly. So he just recommended me. He told me to send a resume. I did. I thought he was just being nice. I didn't even send my resume. It was like a Thursday and Monday morning. I had an email from the owner, like telling me to come in there for an interview. And that was just like mind blowing. So I went there and I got the job. I had to intern for like two weeks and yeah. And then immediately I was in charge of like this whole resort down in Jamaica that had like 20 to 30 different zones. You know, they would have like an Italian restaurant. 
They would have like a Latin restaurant. Of course, they would have like a jerk chicken spot. They would have like a zone by the pool. They would have like a spa. And I was responsible for most all these zones. And yeah, it was like, I would get emotional at a time. Like I remember like the one creative director at, at the resort in Jamaica. He's like, I really need a, a playlist of like reggae music, but like jazz, like no vocals. And at that time, like I knew I was like really in love with like the music of Dean Frazier, who's like a really famous saxophonist. He plays on like all the early reggae. And I remember like I was just like downloading like music to put into a playlist to curate for this resort. And I got like emotional. Like I was at my job and like I literally had like a tear like down, like down my cheek because I couldn't believe I was like getting paid to do this. Like, you know. Because again, that's how like reggae music like is like a spiritual music, and to this very day, it affects me like that. You know. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with Sure Shot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Okay, I'm going to ask you something and I'm going to get a bit personal here because sometimes if I'm in, in a situation, I, I can't necessarily tell when I feel stressed mm-hmm. I notice it through certain actions and sometimes it doesn't happen very often but sometimes I'll be in, in some sort of stress situation and a bit of music will just set me off and I'll yeah. start crying so when you were describing that to me the, the job and the amount of different zones that sounded like it would be really stressful so do you think there could have been any of that involved where your stress level is climbing as well and the music just kind of dials in? You know, when I first got the job, I would be lying to you if I didn't say it was stressful because very immediately, not only did I have that resort as one of my main clients, I had like hotels and like restaurant groups. Like I had to do the music programming for this one restaurant group in Atlanta that had 10 different concepts. And this is in Atlanta. So they want a lot of like, they had like Tex-Mess music, country music, blues music, like uh, 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 a rockabilly, like all this music I was not really familiar with, but it was like out of the frying pan into the fire. I just had Mm. to do it. But yeah, it would be like really stressful at times. But that particular moment with the resort, I just remember like 
listening to those Dean Frazier songs and remembering listening to the same songs on the Peter Dante reggae show that I grew up on and being like, this guy would be so proud of me because like he, he influenced me and here I am getting paid uh, pretty well to do this job where like, I'm just placing this music down in Jamaica. Like I couldn't ask for anything more at that, at that, at that time, you know? And I love that job. That was one of the best jobs I ever had. And I, I very, I very much want to continue to do that work. And, and it's my goal to get another job, uh, uh, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, so what was next after that? So once I was working for EL Media Group, I had a really great experience with them, was there for like five years. I mean, I was eventually hired to do the music for Pharrell's restaurant, Swan, down in Miami. And uh, we would have to take trips to some of these places. That was always very interesting, actually getting to go there and like catch a vibe. But sometimes you wouldn't be able to go there. And you would just have to like imagine yourself there and what people would be receptive to without being there. And most of the time I would get it right, but sometimes I wouldn't. And you know, the most rewarding thing about that time was just being able to like get the feedback that I was mm. doing a good job. And uh, yeah, I, I did that for like five years. But then of course, when the pandemic came, I was laid off, unfortunately. And that was kind of devastating because I really didn't see that coming. You know, I really felt like I was a, a, a shining light for that organization. I mean, I was in charge of all the holiday playlists. I was in charge of all the top 40 pop music playlists, the classic rock, the the, the pop disco, the you know, the, the deep house, the the reggae, the the 90s hip hop, the 80s hip hop. Like that was mainly my job because I was in love and passionate about so many different genres. They knew that. So they assigned me to creating like those master genre lists or music programs for them that were working quite well. I mean, my, my playlists were playing in like restaurants like Nobu and, and Tao and like these big, big restaurant groups that, you know, to this day are flourishing. But, you know, mm. I no longer have a job doing that. But again, I am going to do my best to get a job Yeah, because I loved it. And that's the only thing I've really been told over the years that like I'm really good at, you know, is selecting music, the right music for, for, for all these kind of moments. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find lockdown then? Was that tough? Lockdown was tough for me because, I don't know, I, I just, I didn't really feel like that inspired anymore. I, I, I just, you know, I, I didn't do much. I got really into a Facebook group, a 1980s skateboarding Facebook group. <laughs> and I just started like going down these like wormholes, finding all these like vintage skateboard magazines. And I like switched my passion from music to like memories of growing up in the 80s and skateboarding yeah. and posting in this group. And there I was getting a lot of positive feedback and I was getting paid, you know, unemployment and the, that money was OK. I got a severance from my job. And then fortunately, my landlord asked me to leave my apartment where I was living for 20 years. And I had a rent controlled apartment and he offered me like a decent amount of money to leave. So I took that money. So I was kind of like paid and I was just kind of <laughs> chilling. You know what I'm saying? I, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been. 
But, you know, I did almost get an interview at Spotify. Um, someone recommended me for a playlist editor job. Um, and the woman hit me up and I was supposed to interview with her. And then I didn't hear back from her for like a few weeks. And then she said that they eliminated the position, unfortunately. But she did say to, to keep a line of uh, communication with her and that if I did see anything on their site, to, to, to reach out to her. She was a recruiter. And, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really take advantage of that per se, but mm. yeah, I would love to work for a streaming company, uh, as a playlist editor or like music curator in any capacity. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how that's going in the advent of big data and AI, how much of it's still with humans. I know it's, you know, it's one of those things where I, I believe in AI and I think it's great, but I still think for music curation, like that warmth of a human touch is like so essential. Also, when you're dealing with like tempos and stuff like that, I don't know if AI can pick up on that, you know? That's the one thing when I go to Spotify and they recommend songs, it's like they're recommending songs that are like much more down tempo than the other songs in the list, you mm. know? And when you're when you're trying to create a, like a real mood for certain playlists, like it's okay to have one or two more down tempo songs, but it is important to keep that energy up. And sometimes I don't know if like I think human curation is still like essential, you know? Yeah, and and everything Spotify does tends to be their data is all about. When we had um, Will Page on here and we were talking to him from Spotify, he was talking about the intimacy with music and how everything's kind of one-on-one -on -one rather than sort of group listening so much now. So you're, you're basing it on a different thing. So say the kind of how you would create a playlist for people is very different probably to how it would create a playlist for a person. And I think the for people is going to be a lot harder for it to, to successfully do. Because yeah. it doesn't know those intricacies. It's not been there in front of, I don't know how many times you've DJed, hundreds, thousands. You've been in the room, you've seen the reactions when you put this song on, you put that song on after this song or before this song. And it's, it's yeah, I think it's going to be hard for it to replicate and replace that level of experience and exposure. Yeah, I think there's always going to need to be that balance with human curation. And then like the AI algorithm, I, I think that's always going to be important. And that's mm. why I think like having curators are now important than everything, especially for music, because I mean, the amount of content that is being released daily, it's important to have, I know taste is subjective and stuff like that still, but it's important to have people, you know, creating playlists, breaking down like these, like, you know, different like moods and similarities between the songs to create like the best vibe, you know? Yeah. And I, I still very much am passionate about that. And, uh, I hope to, to continue in that field. Amazing. Yeah. Um, is there anything that we've not gone through? Cause we've, <laughs> we've covered a lot of different places and what, what just struck me when you were talking about lockdown, sorry, was it comes across that you've got a real, appetite with the curation for it's kind of curating things to share with the people so it's kind of when that was taken away from you musically with, with um 
lockdown and the job going, then you kind of move that to curating something else to share with people. Mm -hmm. And it gives you that kind of connection. I just think it's important to remember that there is a real value in what I do on a surface level. It's like nowadays everybody creates playlists, but personal taste really plays so much into it. And again, I know music is subjective and I'm not trying to say like I have the greatest taste in the world, but to be a great music curator, you need to be able to listen to hundreds of songs daily, not the whole song, and very quickly recognize what is special about that song and re where it needs to go, you know, and, and tagging plays into that and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, you know, I think um, I just need to remember that, that there is real value. And um, fortunately, because I still do it for venues in Brooklyn, the Woods, the Breakers, a few other places, I still am getting that positive feedback from the clients and from the people that work there. So again, I know what I'm doing has real value and I just want to take it to another level yeah. and continue to DJ as well. I really am hoping that I can get it together enough to have my own branded party, either a day party or something at night. Again, it's been like something I've been wanting to do for a long time and uh, it just takes a lot of work and I just want to do it right. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to just like show up somewhere and hope that people show up. I really want to build like a brand and, and, and get people excited about the music that I'll actually be playing there to get them to want to come and, and, and have a good time. Yeah. I think promoting's its own beast of a job, isn't it? It really is. I've never been good at it. I've never been good at like talking about myself per se. And, and you know, that's why, you know, you got to get someone younger. I really like that dynamic of like mm. having someone younger like myself who back in the day just randomly emailed Mark Echo and he went for it. You got to get some like younger energy because over time you get a little jaded and especially living in New York. It's like it can be tough here, man. You know, it's yeah. not an easy place to live. But if you love it, if you love the the heart and pulse of the city, you do your best to get every get up every day and 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 make it happen as as best as you can, you know. And that's basically what I've been trying to do for over the last twenty two years living here. And I don't plan on leaving anytime soon. I I, I would like to move to someplace tropical like Costa Rica, <sighs> or even uh, it would be a dream to move to Jamaica one day. But uh, New York still uh, has my heart, and um, I'm gonna be here for a while, and I'm gonna do my best to. To contribute and 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 uh, you know, just express myself in in any way that I can musically and and to inspire people is really all all I've ever wanted to do. And have you got any um, new projects coming up? Any new mixes? I I I've had an idea um, to do like an ambient mix to help me sleep because I really recognize the therapeutic value in music. And there's a lot of like lounge songs that I've come across that have like a meditative quality to them. Mm. And I can literally put on a song and fall asleep on YouTube within like, you know, three minutes. The song's like a seven minute song. So I figured why not make a, a, a whole two hour mix of those type of songs that I've been regularly falling asleep to. And um, for myself, first and foremost, but hopefully for others. So. Yeah, I haven't been recording as many mixes as as I as I want to, but I do have some live mixes I've uploaded to Mixcloud recently, live at Turntable Lab a couple of years ago, and then also um, 
what was the other one that I did? Um, oh, yeah, Live on the Lot Radio, Analog Soul. Those are my peoples. I'm actually going to see them tomorrow with uh, DJ Ellie and Rich Medina, 4th of July party. Really, very much nice. looking forward to that. Yeah. So, yeah, just um, I'm going to try to to knock that out hopefully like next week. So look out for that at mixcloud.com slash extra niceness. And I want to give a shout to A1 Records. Check them out at A1 Records Shop. The whole staff there, amazing to work with them. They always put me on to like some of the illest music uh, I've heard since like working there these last couple years. And I just feel very blessed to have a gig there. And uh, and and uh, the whole the whole team there is just really uh, top notch. I'm there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I love working at the store. They just opened a store in Paris. Uh, that's pretty exciting. And it's just mind-blowing how many amazing records come through that place. In addition to the artists that come through there. I mean, RZA was just in there. Large Professor is in there all the time. Q-Tip, Buck Wild, Pete Rock. I mean, I'm just like a kid at a candy <laughs> store. <laughs> Wide-eyed, you know what I mean? Every time those guys walk through the door. Do you manage to kind of stay cool and talk to them or do you just fan out or? I, 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 you know what, man? Like, I, maybe, like Pete Rock is my favorite hip hop producer of all time. Yeah, me too. I, I recognize who these guys are and I do my absolute best to play it cool as possible. But you better believe when they're <laughs> in there, all these songs are going through my head that they made and I'm just like, that's the guy, you know what I'm saying? But no, I mean, Large Professor is like, I consider him like a personal friend. Like, he's one of the coolest, most serious dudes ever. And it's insane because he's at A1 every week. He's still hella passionate about records and, you know, curious. And, you know, he's always putting us on to stuff we didn't know about. And I just really feel um, blessed to, to be in an environment where I get to be around this, you know. And, and I wouldn't have it any other way. If Even if I led a job working Monday through Friday, I'm still going to keep a job at A1 working mm. at least uh, a Saturday or a Sunday because I, I just love being around records again. You know, it's like I kind of forgot. Um, I kind of lost my passion for record collect collecting and stuff like that. Um, having to move and having so many thousands of records, it kind of got like annoying, but... Man, like working in a record store, you can really build up your collection like really quickly. And I'm starting to do that again. So I hope to like DJ more vinyl gigs and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, just the last couple of questions then before we go. Um, is there any one key piece of advice you'd give for anyone starting DJing? Man, something I wish someone would have told me so many years ago is to really... Even when I was playing vinyl, like I was never the person to BPM my records or like, you know, like I just always kind of winged it. And like mm. somehow I, 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 I would pull it off and, and, and I would, you know, have like great nights. But even to this very day, I think being prepared is like super important, you know, knowing your music, um, uh, having it in the right playlist, you know, uh, also, um, you know, just being, you know, the older you get, it's easier to not be as passionate and not to think that this kind of stuff matters. But if you love music, like, just stay with it and, like, really, really do your best to always be learning about music, listening to music, and sharing music. And, and, and play what you love. 
that's something I feel like I've heard on this podcast a, a lot, and I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Also, I have heard on this podcast a few guys have said that they don't drink anymore. I respect that wholeheartedly. During the pandemic, I didn't drink for like a year and a half, but I will say sometimes. If you have to rock a party, if you're DJing a wedding and you need to get on the level of a dance floor, having a shot of tequila is okay. <sighs> it's all right. And it can sometimes make or break the night. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I get it for some people. They're just, they, they've had enough of it and they need to put it to the side. And, and I definitely do respect that. But don't start drinking a lot of beers when you're in your 40s because you'll have to go to the bathroom like every 20 minutes and- while you're DJing, that is the absolute worst. Yeah, I think certain genres as well that you DJ, say if you're just DJing Funk 45s, that's when it's a problem because everything that you're playing is only about two, two and a half minutes long. If you're a disco DJ and you have to go to the toilet all the time, it's not too bad because you can put on six, seven minute songs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's a good tip for people. Don't DJ deep funk if you've got a weak bladder. Totally, man. Yeah, that's that's some of the best advice ever, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. Nuggets. We're getting nuggets. <laughs> Dropping science. <laughs> so just the last thing to ask you then is, um, is there anyone particularly you'd like to hear on this podcast? And if so, why? I would like to recommend a, a, a DJ friend of mine. We actually used to be roommates. His name is DJ G. Brown. He lives in Miami now. He used to DJ for Afu Ra. He was actually pretty tight with Premier. He used to tour with Afu and Gangstar. And man, he was just like a really dope DJ, man. He used to work at the club circuit in New York City. And he was just a good dude. He did a couple mixtapes for me at Echo. And uh, he just comes from that old school party rocking, raw rap, meets reggae, hip hop reggae, raga vibes. And uh, I think he would be an interesting and unique guest to have on the on the podcast for sure amazing neil nice thanks very much for your time today adam thank you so much man it's been a real pleasure likewise take care thanks very much thanks peace thanks for listening to the one to dj podcast if you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests please just get in touch with us at one to dj podcast at gmail.com or on instagram at Once a DJ Podcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.